Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We are all entitled to sexual health, just as much as physical and mental health. We want to make it easier for folks to find resources. However they engage with us, there's no wrong door. So it's important that people are able to get access to care that is affirming. Talking about what their sex life is, about their concerns, and to make sure they're healthy. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your sexual health matters. Visit doitforyoumc.org. Hey everyone, Scott Hansen here from NFL Red Zone. I hope you're checking out one hour of commercial-free five-yard rush, one of the best podcasts on NFL football in the UK. Phones to silent, doors to cross-check, hold on to your hats. This is Five Yard Rush, your fantasy football podcast, with your hosts, Stocks, Sparky, Murph and Nick. Oh, Rush Nation, Murph here again. We did manage to get our guest back on, and he's going to be here in just a couple of moments. thought I'd record a quick intro just to remind everybody about the Listener League entries. So we launched the podcast, I think it went out just under an hour ago. Um, we've already had some entries, which is incredible. Don't forget to enter into the Listener Leagues. You need to be listening to the podcasts. I put a little teaser on on Twitter, but really we're only going to be posting the codes through here. So you need to be DMing us on any of the channels at Five Yard Rush um, with the words fantasy domination and then select the league that you want. So we're doing, if you missed the podcast from earlier or you've left that one um, to listen to this one first, and personally I don't blame you at all, then you'll find out in there which leagues we're doing but a quick recap we're doing a standard league a half point ppr league a one point ppr league and a superflex idp league we'll also be doing one other league which will either be a superflex ppr or an auction league that's tbc so the spots are going we have about 40 left so please do get in touch if you're interested in playing in our leagues there will be some prizes they will be announced at a later date um the last thing just to touch upon is the announcement of the 
season ticket sales uh, for the NFL games. There seems to be a massive backlash on on Twitter, and I can understand um, the annoyance of people. There's been some promises in the past um, about signing up and you get early access to, to tickets, and uh, for particularly the White Hart Lane, Tottenham Stadium, whatever it's going to be called, games. And uh, I can understand people's frustration, but uh, I think there's been quite a lot of over-the-top reactions at the same time. Um, I think where we get uh, a privilege to have the NFL here for four games, it, it isn't a right. And I understand people's frustrations, and I'm there to a degree with that frustration. But they, you know, season tickets are going to be the way forward. Um, you can still buy them. You you know, there's 60,000 tickets at the, or 62,000, I think, at the new Tottenham Stadium. Obviously, take a couple thousand off probably for the extra space they might not need to, depends how the stadium dynamics are. Um, and yes, I can understand that people are fearing missing out, and I think that's what's driving this reaction. But I think once the sales process goes through, the ticket process goes through, um, I think genuine fans will get them. Uh, the only concern will obviously be how much goes on to reseller sites, etc. But um, I think if you aren't looking to go to all the games, then try and find genuine fans to to sell to directly. And if you can't find them, then get in touch with us and we can retweet and repost stuff. And we know lots of people that are willing to do that as well. But let's not try and use uh, ticket sites to, to do all of that. So again, understand the frustration, but at the same point, it's a real privilege to have this amazing sport that we all love over here. So um not going to tell people what they should and shouldn't post, but you know, if we vent too much anger, uh, at people who cannot control the process, then, you know, we're just going to lose it in the end. And I think that that's kind of what we don't want. Um, so give it some time and think before you tweet and uh, don't expect an immediate change or immediate response. They've been thinking about this for a while. So just to set those expectation levels, but really hope you all get tickets and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, at the game. I will be attending. I'll only be attending one this year if I can get the tickets, obviously, but um, that'd be due to family circumstances, etc. But, Enough about that. I just wanted to say a little something on that. And uh, I hope you really enjoy this podcast that we're recording. Don't forget the code Fantasy Domination to enter into our listener leagues. It's one entry per person. So select the league you want. And uh, here's our guest. Murph here, flying solo, here on my own at the moment. Uh, Stocks is still away, uh, enjoying his holiday. And rightfully so. This man never takes uh, some time off and has not missed a podcast. So. Uh, don't uh, at us for him not being here. But I did rule the, uh, reel in some company this week. Um, so my guest today is uh, a former co-host and analyst of Channel 5 and Channel 4 coverage of the NFL, but he's now part of the live BBC coverage for the NFL, and you can hear his dulcet tones, especially during the Super Bowl. It's Iron Mike Carlson. Mike, how's it going? Well, I guess the next best thing being alone is being alone with me. <laughs> It's a massive upgrade. I'm I'm not one of these people that loves my own company. I, I'd much rather be in the company of absolutely anybody talking to him. But I happen to get someone who I've uh, enjoyed listening to and hearing for the last uh, the last ten years or so. So uh, for me, this is a real treat. No, thanks. You know, it's um, I'm just happy to be there. You know, <laughs> that's my that, that's my mantra um, these days. But uh, you know, it, it just gets more and more interesting as I go along and uh you know I'm lucky I think I'm lucky to still be doing the BBC because they've got so much going on and uh Nat and I have been doing talk sport radio for a few years now uh sort of continuing the channel 5 channel 4 uh partnership um you know so hopefully we'll all be back in those same places uh, this season and 
you know, and I'm really looking forward to the season, obviously, and, and, and the bonanza of games in London on the BBC, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, we're recording this just a couple of hours after the ticket news, which was at first delayed, uh, has has come out. And uh, we were just talking before this, the, the reaction on Twitter seems to be particularly negative due to the fact that the Spurs, the Tottenham Hotspur tickets uh, are not going to be sort of in a pre-existing uh season ticket setting like I think people were kind of hoping and expecting but they still get this wonderful opportunity to see four games uh, over here which no other country in the world has so uh, I I sort of said in the intro that uh, it's bad and I kind of see why people are upset but let's not take it too far we still get four amazing games that we get to watch and this year's lineup I think is the best ever yeah it's a very good one and you know I I assume or I just always figured there would be some kind of problem because in reality, the NFL can sell out four games at Wembley. And when you move to Spurs, you're talking about uh, 20,000 fewer people um, over two games. So that's kind of like 40,000 tickets you could sell, um, but won't sell. And, and, you know, and and I think that's, um, that's a shame really when, when you, when you think about it, but obviously I think the NFL's long-term thing is to have a sort of football more or less specific ground that they can call on all the time. And um, it makes that first game with Oakland and Chicago really, really interesting, you know, <laughs> especially since Oakland did so well last year. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, they've got a few more players in the door since then. So I think they're not going to be any worse. No, no, I, that's certainly, that's certainly true. And if they win a few games, you know, Chucky will be saying it was his master plan all along and we'll have to say, Oh God, he's smarter than he looks. <laughs> to be honest, my I'm a I'm a Bucks fan, so I I I'm used to Chucky. Oh well, and... you've got one coming up then. Yeah, you've got one coming up too. And yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the interesting things about Gruden is that you know he's built his reputation kind of on the basis of no real available evidence. Um, you know, there's there's no sign that he actually ever has been a quarterback whisperer, as any as any Bucks fan. Uh, could tell you. I think there's even questions about his judgment uh, um, of quarterbacks that he's had. And of course, you know, his um, his triumph in Tampa was done with somebody else's team and in a Super Bowl where the coach, you know, his former assistant coach hadn't bothered to change any of the <laughs> offensive nomenclature. And so the team knew everything that was, was happening. So things have fallen right for him over his career. Um, I, I accept they look to have had a pretty good draft, you know, and, and not a bad free agency period in terms of, of team building. So I think, I think it will be a really, you know, interesting game against the bears because the bears are one of those teams that I think we really have to look out for this season. Yeah. I, I massively agree. I think the bears have, done really well off season i i i'm still a bit partial to to chucky i think he i think he has a lot to offer i don't think he's a great talent evaluator and i think his stint in tampa kind of uh points to that with the players that he recruited and the players that he brought in through drafts that clearly didn't bond well mesh well but i do think he is uh very different with his play calling and i actually think with very senior players he can get the best out of them at the end of their careers when people have almost given up on them. I, I see what he did with some of the players in Tampa towards the end of their careers. And he's very good at getting veteran guys who have gone through the league, 
who haven't really found a home and he gives them a home for a couple of years. Uh, I think like Jojo Ravicious uh, during that Buck Super Bowl campaign was instrumental and it was a guy that pretty much nobody was interested in. And I think that's where his talent lies is, is a man manager and, and that as opposed to finding new young talent. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and it reminds me in a sense of George Allen, um, who always seemed to be able to pick up one or two veteran guys that everybody felt didn't have much time uh, you know, left on the clock. And I think that's probably why he seemed to give the draft over to Mike Mayock more or less. Um, although, you know, interestingly, a lot of people said that since they drafted, I think it was four of their eight guys or four of their nine guys from either Clemson or Alabama, it was as if that was the only college game they watched <laughs> all season. Kind of like like the old days when guys went into the draft with a copy of Street and Smith's yearbook rolled up in their pocket, um, you know, and they might have caught one of the bowl games on New Year's Day and, and maybe the, the senior bowl or the blue-gray game, and, and we're going on that. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. I think all, all the games have a little something uh, about them, which I, I really like. And, you know, I think in previous years, we've had games unfortunately that perhaps haven't been massively competitive and I think this year I think you're going to get a couple and it's nice to get divisional games too uh, with the Bucks and Carolina because those games always are pretty close there's never huge blowouts it's it's always a case of uh, who gets the momentum early in that game tends to triumph and then you've got the Texans who have never been over here before so great opportunity for for their fans over here and there's quite a following here um, to see their team so I, I'm genuinely really excited for, for this year's lineup and back to getting four games uh, I didn't quite like it last year when we only had three <laughs> yeah four four is nice and I always say the same thing yeah every year there are teams that disappoint and teams that surprise and when the Wembley games are announced we never really know the matchups that look really good may not turn out to be so um the teams that look really good might not be the teams that don't look good might be and and occasionally you get two teams that aren't that good but they throw up a really good game like uh, Washington and Detroit a few years ago. Mm. Um, and, you know, so uh, I always look forward to it. You know, even if it's a bad game, it's, it beats, uh, it beats the alternative. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it also means we can watch games in, uh, in daylight as well, which is uh, always. That's, a plus. True. <laughs> That's true. So going into, obviously you, you broadcast on, on the BBC now and you, you've had a few homes. I, how, how did you end up getting into uh broadcasting the NFL uh, in the UK and and also how did you get started in the media in general covering football um well when i came over here in 77 i i tried to get a job in in journalism and uh the old fashioned way by knocking on doors in in fleet street and it w- it was tough but i i did get into a, a couple of offices and one of them was united press and the guy at united press liked me for some reason and tried to give me a job at the time on their sports desk but the sports editor who later became a friend of mine um and then went on to reuters uh wouldn't hire me and he told me later it was because he simply wouldn't hire somebody somebody else told him to hire he was going to hire his own person um but eventually i got a letter from the guy um or i got a phone call from a guy who had had a letter from him recommending me to their television news agency which was called upitn it was based at itn and they hired me as a sort of part-time replacement during the summer and then kept me on. Uh, and about a year later, year and a half later, I'd been 
producing satellite feeds and writing scripts. And the, I was the night editor. I was the shop steward, <laughs> which was pretty interesting for a 26-year-old American guy. Um, I, I had a fight with an Australian scriptwriter because he was late and slow writing a script about a cricket match. And, and I threw him off the telex machine and, and it was going to Australia. And I typed the thing out on the telex machine off the top of my head. And the next day, the editor called me into his office and I said, I saw what you did with John Ayers. I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have lost my temper. He said, I don't give a whatever about that. He said, but how could you write a cricket story? You're a, you're a Yank. I said, oh, I've seen a few matches. Uh, I live not far from Lords, And, um, you know, it's a game. Games are easy to understand. So he looked at me and he said, do you want to be our sports editor? <laughs> and um, from that point on, I asked him if it was more money. And he said, yeah. And from that point on, I was I was doing sports, television sports, um, not often uh, doing anything on camera, uh, some voiceovers. And I went from them to ABC Sports in London, where I did basically everything that we did for Wide World of Sports, which which was great training in terms of production, in terms of what you expect from announcers, in terms of understanding all these different sports we did, because you had to know where cameras were going to be placed and how coverage was going to work and what people did in the sport. And you, you obviously met met and had to deal with organizers and, and officials and coaches and stars and that kind of thing. Um, and then from there, I wound up uh, going to Major League Baseball in the early 90s and I, I was running their London office. I put on a game at the Oval with minor league players from the Mets and Red Sox. So it's really um, exciting for me that they're going to have a game, two games in uh, at Wembley this year. And uh, I think I'm going to be invited back as like an old timer's day. It's one of those where like Slapshot when the, the goons from the past skate out on the ice for the final game against the Chiefs. Um, so, but anyway, what happened was Greensport were baseball's uh, broadcaster, and they had a problem with their color announcer for their games, who was awful. <laughs> and uh, they, we, I was having a meeting with them, and they asked what I could do. And I tried to get an ex-ball player to come over, but they didn't have the budget to actually bring someone over for the whole baseball season, pay them, and you know, pay expenses and stuff. And and then one of the executive producer, it, it, there were two guys. One one was George. Black and one was George Green. It was like it was like um, a Tarantino movie, and and George Green George Green said to me, um, "Could you do it?" And I said, "Well, you know, I've done some stuff, um, never really done, do, but this was it was typical studio punditry. It wasn't like having to do the game." And um, I asked my boss, and he said it was okay. And I wound up doing the baseball with Nick Halling, and I did that. And then when World League of American Football came on. They needed an announcer um, for that. And Nick said, you played football in college, right? And I said, sure. And um, so I wound up doing that, including live games that we did like at Wembley. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when they came back in 95, Sky hired me to do the same thing, by which time that baseball office had closed down. I'd done some baseball on Sky um, before the players went on strike in 94. So, so I did the World League in 95. I did some NFL for them. I hosted it one year with Nick as my expert guest, which is a really interesting reversal of our roles. And the following year, without telling me, they brought, well, Kevin had been doing stuff with me on World League, but he had then quit his coaching job and decided to go full-time as an announcer. And Sky had hired him full-time as an announcer. And 
they were giving him the hosting job, but they hadn't bothered to tell me. And um, Kevin and I had talked and he hadn't told me because he thought they had. And Kevin was saying, was thinking to himself, what a nice guy. He hasn't even mentioned this. You know, he must be disappointed or upset. And I was thinking, and I, um, I was thinking, you know, Kevin, you really shouldn't have told me this. We didn't sort that out until a year later or whatever. But that was when Channel 5 came on air. So I was actually available. And uh, Robert Charles at Channel 5, and uh, uh, I knew from my ABC days. And Robert uh, talked to the people at Sunset and Vine and, and sort of said, well, would you be okay with not being the host, but being the, the analyst? And I said, well, that would probably suit better. So I started doing that with Mark Webster and, um, you know, went through a whole lot of hosts. And then the program moved to Channel 5, dropped it, and the program moved to Channel 4, and, and I moved with it and uh, moved to a different production company, and I moved with that. And I, when they didn't get the playoffs, uh, I started doing them on the BBC, which was nice, um, and then the Super Bowl on the BBC. So I, I've, been, I've done every Super Bowl now since 2007. There were a few others I'd done, like on radio for for the uh, early versions of Talksport Radio or or Five Live Radio, um, always from London. But with 2007, I've done every one since, and about half of them live on site. All but two with the BBC. Two of them were on Channel Four, one in New York and one in the studio with Nat and OC and I. And um, the amazing thing is they've all been great games with the exception of that Denver-Baltimore game in New York, which was a blowout. But every other one has been a close. And although people moan about last year's Super Bowl, I thought it was just a great game. I, you know, I just thought it was fascinating um, to watch. And, and a game that could, you know, when you have a game that could be decided by one play, literally almost from the start of the game. You know, one touch, and it's certainly all through the second half. You just thought first team that gets a touchdown is going to win this game. Um, you know, I just thought that that was absolutely fantastic. So, you know, it's been a good run. I've done some other stuff along, lots of other stuff along the way, um, broadcasting, uh, most notably basketball for the BBC at the Olympics. And I've done hockey. I've done baseball, uh, lacrosse, professional wrestling with Mark Webster and a show that Nick Halling produced for for um, Meridian TV back around 2000, uh, the Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge. Uh, I've written some books about movie directors. I write obituaries. Uh, I, I do arts reviews, pop up on the radio here and there. Uh, you know, basically whatever I can do. But it's it's always been my life has always been like arts and writing and, and sports. And people some always have said along the way, you know, uh, oh, it's weird, you know, that you like sports so much, but you do this. And this was before, like, Laddie stuff was popular. Nick Hornby had made football okay for, like, arts correspondents on the BBC to admit they actually followed. Um, but One that's of my it. favorite books, it's, I've by been the really way. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I actually watched a Nick Hornby written movie the other day called uh, Juliet Naked, uh, which... At, Netflix go was not bad. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. My girlfriend really liked it. So that was, a, it was like win-win um, in, in, that, in that situation. But, you know, I, I just think I've been really lucky because I've always been doing stuff I like to do, apart from maybe the, um, the business uh, politics of ABC Sports and Major League Baseball, <laughs> which, which was difficult for, for somebody like me. But, um, but you know, other, other, it's hard to say what you think. And say, <laughs> 
and I really have trouble not saying what I think, as, as people who've watched me for a long time probably will understand. Hey, listen, we, we, uh, we're in the same boat there. I'm exactly the same when I'm doing my day job. It's uh, very much a case of I have to bite my tongue sometimes because uh, I'm a person who prefers honest feedback and honest communication. And um, I think the areas I fall down is that politics, uh, you know, sometimes just having to sugarcoat things or um, not even necessarily that, but just sometimes, you know, giving criticism or constructive feedback that will allow for a better result. Uh, knowing that the person who is going to take that feedback won't take it very well and won't be open to that. And you're just sitting there thinking like, come on, I'm not <laughs> criticizing you as a person. It's just a process and this will make the process better. I've tried and tested it and I know it works. And, but that's it's uh, the way the game, it's the way the game's played as they <laughs> say on the wire. Exactly that. I, you know, I, Homer, you know, Homer Simpson's three, three phrases that will get you through life. One, which are cover me, cover for me. It was like that when I got here and Great idea, boss. <laughs> <laughs> you should trademark them, and uh, and yeah. Well, Homer that. Simpson already did trademark. Them, <laughs> oh, so yeah. I'm, afraid I, I'm afraid I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. I'm going to uh, definitely put that into my uh, playbook for uh, for next week. In terms of obviously incredible story, incredible career, you you must have met some fascinating players and and some real giants of of all sports. But you know, if you had to pick uh, one or two, I mean, who who would you say is the best uh, the best player you've ever interviewed or or interacted with, past or or present? Wow, oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, in the non football thing, when I was lived in Montreal, I worked at the as a press liaison in the Montreal Forum. Um, and the Olympic basketball was one of the things there. And ABC's coverage, the, the color guy was Bill Russell, the Boston Celtics center. And I actually went all fanboy and asked him for an autograph, which he refused to do. Um, he didn't give autographs uh, and he explained why. But, but in football, I guess the easy answer would be Jerry Rice. Mm. who I did one of the Wembley games with for BBC, if I, if I remember right. Um, he'd be the best player because he's one of, you know, he's either the best or one of the two best receivers ever. Probably, I mean, it's hard to argue that he's not the best receiver ever, and he's probably one of the top 10 football players ever. Um, and so that was fun. And the interesting thing about Jerry Rice working with him was that Jerry Rice knows how good he was. And there's no braggadocio about it. You know, he's 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 not like, uh, you know, boasting or something like that. He just states it as a fact when, when it reaches that situation. And he understands perfectly how good he was. Um, I had a Bill Russell type moment one year at the Super Bowl when Jim Brown walked past me, although walked was, is kind of an exaggeration because he's he's really hobbled by um, chronic injury and almost bent over. Um, and I didn't actually know what to say. So um and Rod, I did two Super Bowls with Rod Woodson, which was a real pleasure because he, he was so knowledgeable and um, he's such a good player. And he went into the Hall of Fame um, the second year that we did. And I was there because in those days it wasn't like a public event. I was just there with the press waiting outside when it was announced. And after it was announced, I stepped out of the room and Rod came in and, and you know, so I gave him a hug and said, congratulations. And the first thing he said to me was, I really wish Dermonte had got in too. Now, Dermonte Dawson, you know, his teammate with the Steelers, who was up in the finals that year. But so those, I guess, would be the, you know, the biggest, most memorable names. But really, for me, it was, I, you know, I wrote a piece a while ago about Lawrence Phillips 
who I, you know, I, who I got to know fairly well during the NFL Europe season when he was over. Um, you know, Adam Vinatieri, I interviewed in that league, John Kitna, uh, you know, lots of guys, uh, Leroy Glover, who, who went on to have, uh, Mike Maslowski went on to have really good careers. Um, and, and that was so different from the NFL because we had such great access to players and coaches and, and, you know, we, we, preseason we'd be standing on the field during scrimmages and during the season you could watch practice the whole of practice coaches most of the coaches gave you uh you know pretty fair evaluations um i tried to work on the basis with with the guys you know if i'm if i'm going to ask you about a guy and you tell me he's really good at this or that i'll I'll quote you and if you say look he's not going to make it or he can't do this i'll you know I'll either put it as my own observation or not mention it at all, you know, but, and, and that seemed to work really well. I got really friendly with a couple of the coaches and there were some great guys there. You know, Jim Tom Sula uh, was an assistant, uh, Jim Kreiner at the Claymores, Ray Walsey at the, at the uh, Monarchs and Claymores, Jack McNell at Barcelona and Scotland and, and Hamburg, um, Dave Duggan, Steve Spagnolo was an assistant there one year. Um, you know, so it was great to, to have that. I learned so much, you know, in that league and, and following it. And, you know, that's where I met Brian Baldinger when he was announcing and, and Baldy's one of the top analysts, uh, you know, that I've ever worked with or seen, uh, for that matter. I think he's, he's really undervalued, um, you know, even today where he's got quite a bit of work and all, but I, you know, I, I just think he's, he's really good. So, you know, it's, there's no, there's no substitute for, for being that up close. You know, the uh, Fox guys were supposed to send me tapes of all the games and they never did. <laughs> so I was working off, um, I was working off whatever I could record myself off, off of sky. And um, I really, I really, learned doing that league when we would show up and just go in with a coach for a couple of minutes if there was tape there you know how how much you could see in a game that that you didn't actually see when you're watching it from the broadcast tape or even you know in the booth when you weren't used to to seeing it that way and we also did i think it was the first year we had a director who had been with nbc probably still was with nbc or fox called kenny fouts and literally when we were doing games he would give you a replay and tell you what you were going to see and what it meant so he'd say okay we've got we've got that fumble you're going to you're going to see the middle linebacker gets a hand in just as the running back runs past him and, and and literally pops the ball out and then you can just repeat that basically and everybody thinks boy he's good <laughs> you know just like people don't realize that there are spotters say sitting next to the play by play guy you know and and they've got they've got the the, the flip charts there and and when the tackles made, they're pointing to the guy who made the tackle, so the announcer can to, can do it, you know. And and you often hear an announcer either when he doesn't have a spotter or when the spotter's not there, just you know, you, he won't mention the name of the player until he can finally go down the roster and see who it was once he once he picks up what the number is. It's 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 a fa- it's a you know it's a really interesting business, and it's one that you if you can do reasonably well, you're actually doing well. Mm. it's like there's so much that you I it's a story I've told before but one game uh two years ago I think OC and I had literally had a 10 minute discussion it wasn't heated like an argument but it was it was a discussion back and forth and we had the guy in the truck giving us replays of a play we weren't going to replay in our coverage <laughs> just because we were arguing over whose mistake it had been 
<laughs> that one team had gotten the big, you know, well, it was that his responsibility. And I'm saying, no, look at his foot. He's going to take a step toward the play the other way. And OC say, no, no, that's just because he made a bad, a bad uh, mistake. I said, no, but look at the guy behind him. He takes a step the other way. That's going to be his coverage. And we just went back and forth for about seven, seven minutes or so. And Nat was sitting there kind of with his chin in his hands listening to it and saying i wish we could do this on air <laughs> i love that I said, it might be a little too esoteric for the audience but that's the kind of thing that you know you're always on un- you're always unsure you know you anytime there's like a coverage breakdown it's really hard to tell until you look at the the 22 tape nine or ten times you know um the next day so so let me take you then back to to february obviously you called the you, you were doing yeah, the research and the play-by-play almost for the uh, the Super Bowl this year. And it, it was a really tight game, as you mentioned, and it was really close. And I love battles like that, not just because of the the closeness of it, but I really love it. You could see that they were two very well-schemed uh, and well-coached teams. And, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, the offenses weren't really shining, but I like to think that the, the coaching staff on the defense is were at their absolute maximum um, with with what they were designing, but in, in a game like that where you don't really have the the highlight real plays, um, instead you're you're talking about the other side of the ball, which perhaps isn't as glamorous to um, maybe junior members or or newer members to the audience or, or people who just don't really like defense. They want to see touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. How, how do you get that balance right between talking about uh, what's going on and, and actually even explaining? how plays sort of break down. So it's a fact of, you know, it's not a busted coverage. It's just maybe a good, uh, you, you know, good play from the wide receiver or, th- or things like that that just make the difference in, in how an amateur would view the game and someone like yourself who reviews the tape. Yeah, that's interesting because first off, you're, you're a little bit dependent on what the um, announcing team has done. Uh, and how much they've analyzed and, and what you've been able to see uh, in replay from their analysis. And during the Super Bowl, it was particularly good because O.C. and Jason are both defensive players. And, you know, Jason's very quick to read coverages and, and see what they're doing. And O.C. obviously can, can watch watch the fronts. And, and stuff only became evident as it goes along you know, and you, you start seeing. So I, I don't even know. I can't remember, and I haven't watched my own. But I realized at some point that the Patriots were doing a lot of robber coverage, you know, a dropping, either dropping a safety who was lined up as a linebacker back or moving one forward. So there was a guy in the middle of the field to try to take away some of those crossing routes. Um, and and also that they were playing in, in pretty much a six-man front with a defensive back up on the line um, and then shift, shifting guy, shifting guys around. And, and I also noticed, no, sorry, noticed that it appeared like one, the, the idea that the Rams had was, was to play forward up front to, to, to kind of bust in and stop plays developing. And, and the Patriots were playing more, um, side to side trying to hold things and and keep keep the play action under under control from the from the rams but you know when i went back and and one of the changes you see nowadays is is that you do get pretty good breakdowns pretty quickly after the game and a couple of people have done really nice breakdowns on on what the patriots were doing defensively um 
and uh, you know how that game-winning drive from the Patriots took place and what they took advantage of from the Rams. But it, it boiled down in the end on that drive, for example, to Joe Tooney man-blocking man Errol Don, Aaron Donald twice, um, where they didn't get a double team on Donald, which they were generally trying to do. Um, and they managed to handle Sue most of the game in single single blocking, which was you know a little bit of a surprise. Um, and and for the um, for the for the Rams, it was a question of trying it, trying not to get themselves into mismatches, which is which is what the what the Patriots finally managed to get them to do. And they also wore them down a little bit in terms terms of the run. But for me, the game was the Rams. The Rams made their plays early and slowed the Patriots down. But the Patriots defense really made you know, two huge plays that turned the, turned the, uh, the nature of the game. And, uh, if they, if they hadn't made those two plays, it would have been a very difficult, a very different result. And they were both kind of individual plays more than anything else. Um, so I, I just, I just thought as it was going on that we were watching modern football at its best and you remember when when the um, Rams and Chiefs played that 53-50 game and everybody was saying, this is the future of the NFL. It's all like that. And I was saying at the time, you know, no, it's not. <laughs> what you've got here are, you know, are two really potent offensive teams that can be taken advantage of. And, and you know, and the Rams turned around and they were a good defensive team. And in, and in this game, you saw some of the ways that those kind of defenses can be stymied. And I would not be surprised if a lot more teams came out doing the kind of stuff New England is doing um, because the way the offensive game is going, the, the Rams will show Cliff Kingsbury is going to be in Arizona. Um, you're going to see more and more of that spread kind of stuff for receivers out there. You're going to have to play in sub packages and, and the Patriots played much of that game in, in what it was hard to tell at the time because I was saying, no, there's five, no, there's six because guys were standing up and dropping off the line, but they were basically playing in a six, a six, one, four, most of the time, which they would morph into very, into various different fronts. Um, and sometimes it was really a six, five, and sometimes it was like a five, one, five and that kind of thing. But you're going to see a lot more of that, I think, uh, with, you know, with, without the defined three or four linemen up front and three linebackers back, uh, as part of the, part of the evolution, uh, of the game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the, you know, amazing that they were two very, very different games, that 54, 51, uh, Rams win over the Chiefs and, and then the 13-3 to Super Bowl. But they both have so many similarities for me, which is uh, excellent scheming, at least on one side of the ball in, in both instances, but really that the game was decided with individual plays uh, in both cases. And I think that, that for me, is how the NFL is, has evolved so much, that you've always had talented players, but now the, the real difference is, is so thin between these top teams that it really comes down to one or two plays in a game, even the blowout yeah. because it changes the momentum of the game and then it causes the score to be run up. But you can almost look at every, every real Titanic game of the last few years 
and you can point to you know in that in that Rams Chief game, it was it was the two uh, the two interceptions. The, the one late on was the one that really changed the game. You can talk about the the defensive block in the in the end zone to deny a, a certain touchdown in the yep. Super Bowl, and and I think that's where these elite teams. I don't think I think it's why I love the sport so much. You've got so many sports out there that are decided you know, weeks and months in advance of, of, of the end of a season um, because you've just got teams that are just far too good and have far too many good players and they can outspend or outcoach other teams yeah. massively. But in the NFL, you can't. It really just comes down to someone stepping up at, 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 that, at that right time and, and making the big play. And I think that's why I love it so much. Yeah, you can scheme as much as you like. I've called it at times gladiators on a chessboard um, and you can make the right moves. But if one guy can't defeat the man in front of him, you know, make his block or whatever, then the best scheme in the world's not going to work. And, uh, you know, one, one of the coaches in NFL Europe used to, well, a lot of them did this, but Jack Bicknell did this to me. I, one week I, um, I said to him, so at the end of the game, so-and-so made a really good play. And he said, well, you know, we were in cover two and, and then we, we shifted our look. And so he he was left with no one to cover it. He was there free to make it. And so the next week I, I learned my lesson. I said, well, you know, on that on that key stop, you know, I saw that you were in cover zero. And, you know, he came up and Jack said, well, yeah, he made a play. You know, we, we needed somebody to make a play and he made a play. I looked and I just said, well, I'm not going to win this one, am I? It's like it's scheme it's individuals but that that is like you say the the beauty of the game and um you know the patriots are six and three in super bowls and probably three of their wins and all three of their losses could have turned on one play Mm. in the game um and gone and gone the other way um and and you know the other three are probably two plays (laughs) because they were they were all you know, three point games and anyway. So, um, you know, the, the margin, the margin of being the greatest ever or, or having a dynasty and the, the margin between that and just being a really good player or team is very, very thin in the NFL. I, I completely agree. And I don't know if you're a, a snooker fan, but um, as a snooker player that I, I know somewhat well, he, he's quite local to me here in Surrey. His name's Jimmy White. And it's amazing because it, it, it's such a parallel. I see the Patriots in him are like complete opposites. Because Jimmy White made it to uh, six world championship finals uh, in snooker and he lost them all. Um, and most of them were pretty yeah. close. It was just one or two things that went against him. And then it's that temperament, it's that thing to, to beat diversity. And then towards the end, it kind of played it played into him. And I, I just find that fascinating that when the Patriots aren't necessarily favored or when they're written off or when they are, you know, not not in their rhythm they still find that way to win and it is those players coming up with big plays at big occasions that that flip the game on the head and it, it, I'd love to know how that happens so consistently in the big moments because that's where yeah. you could recreate that and I guess that's what Belichick, Belichick brings to the the table that that others can't maybe yeah well they do try to have them prepared you know and 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 everybody knowing what they have to do all the time as they adjust because, and they do adjust, you know, more than most teams. Uh, it's, it's an, it's an interesting thing because the, I actually, I honestly believe that the Rams should be the favorites in that game. You know, if you go down, if you go down player for player, talent, talent wise, the Rams had the better team and, and Wade, 
Wade Phillips is a great defensive coach. And, you know, in Denver, he was able to, um, to, to wreak a lot of havoc with the Patriots, although they only won that game 24-22, if I remember right. Um, and Brady had a chance to tie it on a two-point conversion and, and missed Gronkowski, who was open. Um, but, but also, you get the sense that in a Super Bowl, when a team has two weeks to prepare for New England, it gives them an advantage because I don't think anyone's better in football that in the one week preparation than the Patriots are. In other words, adjusting what they do to what they've seen, they what they think you're going to do and showing you something that you might not necessarily be expecting. And I thought that was a big factor when they lost to the Eagles um, because Doug Peterson had two weeks to come up with a few things that the Patriots might not have seen um, offensively. And, um, you know, and that's another one of those things where, you know, that and Malcolm Butler, you know, if if Bill plays Malcolm Butler in in the last three quarters or something like that, do the Patriots, you know, not give up one of the touchdowns they gave up? Um, Or if Tom Brady, if Tom Brady hits uh, Hogan, uh, after the sack, after they'd given up the sack, the next possession, he had Hogan about the 40-yard line. If he and he missed the throw, if he hits that throw, then all of a sudden there's like 40 seconds left, and they're almost at midfield, and and everybody's uh, grabbing their crotches and thinking, oh, it's going to happen again. Um, it's that kind of stuff that you know really makes the game so good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you know what? There's so many instances of this. I, I always think of the, the Marshall and Lynch uh, wasn't called for running uh, for the run and they decided Russell Wilson and, and St- Yeah, and, and exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, what's his name? Do- doesn't make the catch. Uh, or or if if um, Harmon doesn't r- leap over him instead of <laughs> running through him and knock the ball away before before Jerome Kerr, uh, Curse. Uh, before Curse can actually catch the ball while it's still kind of bobbling on his chest, it, it, that's a whole different scenario too. And then, you know, th- there's a great moment which somebody got on the camera, and it's around somewhere. But on that last play, OC and OC and Nat and I are are in the studio, and on Butler's interception, I'm literally up in the air, and my arms are out, my jaws down. I'm going, what? Because <laughs> even though a minute later I was celebrating the result, <laughs> as my old college uh, teammate got got another Super Bowl, um, <laughs> I couldn't believe that they hadn't run the ball. <laughs> it, it was like, you know, I, I understand, you know, in in retrospect, the the uh, the uh, lot logic or the or at least the uh the feeling the feeling behind it but but still you just got to think um with all with those that time left you know and bill not taking a time out why didn't you keep it on the ground no that one will forever baffle me It's, it's interesting i've just been reading um friend of the podcast uh ben isaacs he's he's actually given me an advanced copy of his book he's bringing out which is uh today in nfl history uh phenomenal book actually he's uh 
detailed uh, a sort of a, a, a significant event or a couple of significant events for each day of the calendar year uh, in, in the NFL. And, and I was reading back to, to that one uh, a few nights ago um, and then I had to go watch it because it had come up in the, in the book. And I was just like, this is just unbelievable to, to, to see this now. And I, I'd kind of always forgotten that, you know, Lynch is on the sidelines questioning what's going on and the coaching staff are just on tender hooks. You just think that might be one of the most boneheaded calls you'll ever see and to see it in the in Well, the you know, if it worked time. if it worked, nobody noticed. But um if you go to the NFL films and they did a they did a doc on the season on the Super Bowl called Do Your Job, they show the Patriots actually practicing against that play in practice and butler messing up and if if you watch again you know you, you see um you see what's his name the the ex seattle corner um stacking up stacking up the the um rub so that so that the locket the receiver doesn't get get any rub there and it leaves the path for butler to get in front of him um so they actually were prepared for that uh it's a brilliant like 2 minutes of chess game between the substitutions and the play call. And I think they thought they had the, the right play call because the Patriots were in goal line expecting that they would give the ball, you know, give the ball to Lynch. Uh, it, it's, it's a great doc to watch. It's, it's really good. And um, I just wrote up for my uh, pa- Patreon column, which I'll put my first plug in for now. Um, but I'm, do, I'm going through division by division. And um, I started off with the NFC West from the 2013 Super Bowl team, uh, the one I mentioned that beat the, the Broncos in, in New York. There are only three Seahawks left from that team in 2013. So six years later, there's only three of the 53 um, still on the team. And, and that's kind of phenomenal when you think about it, you know, um, and how hard it is to maintain consistency in the NFL because there are so many pieces that you have to put together correctly and in the salary cap and free agency era um, and given the injuries that are endemic in the game, you know, it, to be able to maintain continuity is just amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. And I find that the roster, con- the roster construction piece so so fascinating because it's what the NFL does uh, differently that, that, that no one else does with the salary cap and, and the way it's structured and um, the fact that you do have to let talent go onto the market. And, and now you're seeing this, this sort of 21st century behavior that has been seen in uh, English football for, for the last few years of players like uh, Antonio Brown demanding trades and saying he's not going to go to a team if you're going to trade for me I'm just going to sit out and Lev Bell sitting out because he wants a bigger deal and I think that's a narrative we'll see over the next few years but it's amazing that up until this point the teams have really had to make tough decisions um, we saw it with the Bucks this week they've they've let six-time Pro Bowl uh, uh, Gerald McCoy leave because of cap reasons and they just can't afford to really keep him and they're going to sign a replacement, which is going to cause a lot of controversy, but uh, it's cheaper. Yeah. It looks like they're going to sign Sue. Um, But, you know, it's interesting because they knew that they would have to release Gerald McCoy. They probably knew McCoy apparently (laughs) realized it at the end of last season. Um, But they certainly knew going into the draft, they were going to have to release McCoy. And I was, surprised that they didn't draft Ed Oliver, who would have been 
a natural replacement for McCoy. He's he's almost exactly the same kind of player, uh, a very quick, uh, slightly undersized defensive tackle uh, who can who can shoot gaps. Instead, they took a linebacker. And when I looked at it, I I started to think. Well, if you look back at Todd Bowles' defenses in Arizona when he was with Arians, um, they didn't have that kind of tackle necessarily. They 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 had guys who ab- absorbed the line of scrimmage and were flexible between end and tackle. And I'm thinking primarily of Calais Campbell mm-hmm. um, in in that end spot, you know, six seven end. Um, but with but with great strength. But you know they they also had uh, a couple of big guys in inside. Uh, I think Darnell Dockett was on that team, um, and it may be that he just felt that he didn't. You know, if if you have to let McCoy go, that's fine because I think I can fill the spot with someone who's going to come cheaper. And I don't expect Sue's going to be a terribly expensive signing. Uh, well, they're talking, they're talking about just ten million year deal. One year, ten million. We're looking at, yeah, one, one year, year, ten million. million. Is what it's going to look like. Yeah, that's more than I kind of more than I was expecting. But um, yeah, they still need they still need to free some more cap space then because apparently they can't sign their top draft picks until they do. Well, it's it's a funny thing because obviously what's happened to to JPP because JPP was due, um, I think, a little over twelve million this year, but actually only uh, around about seven point four of that is guaranteed. So because of his injury, and he's, he's looking like he's going to miss at least yeah. half the season. That will free up uh, a few million there. Plus, with when you factor in the difference they'll save on McCoy and Sue, which is going to be, what, three three million or so. I think that's yeah. going to cover the, the draft picks. Um, and they bought a lot of guys in early, like Shaq Barrett. I, I wasn't surprised with, with Ed Oliver um, not coming to the Bucs. I, was, I wasn't surprised with, with Devin White coming in because we, when you looked at this class, the, there were two um, elite starting red, ready day one linebackers in this class in Devin White and Devin Bush. and Yeah, the two Devons. Yeah, yeah and, and because Kendall Beckwith was, is not going to play this year and that's now been confirmed, they, they must have known that pre-draft and, and losing Quan Alexander to that mammoth deal to the 49ers, they, they don't have a starting uh, Mike linebacker. I mean, it would have been Riley Buller, uh, who we know from Hard Knocks and, and not anything else. So I think they... Yeah they were committed and, and they, they put themselves into a bit of a hole because they ended up having to draft a huge position of need in an area that was very weak in this draft, which meant that they missed out on some elite talent. Like you said, Ed Oliver or uh, Josh Allen uh, would have been the player, I, I, you know, outside of Devin White would have liked, but it, there wasn't anybody else. There's no one in free agency you could have targeted to fill that hole. It's a case of you you need to, to take this player now and, and, and that's it. And you kind of pigeonhole yourself in. So, uh, it didn't shock me that we that Devin White was drafted, but it's a shame that so what's happened now. JPP's gone and uh, and McCoy's gone, and that's fifty uh, percent of the Buccaneers' uh, sacks from last season have, have pretty much been eliminated in the last two weeks. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there and what Bruce has got uh, lined up and cooking. <laughs> yeah, Noah Noah Spence is going to be a big man for you guys. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a there's going to be a lot of uh, multi multi uh, position players. I think Levante David, if he can get 16 games out of him, he's be... a great Levante David's a great player, you know, and and rarely recognized as such. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, but I think it's going to be a lot of just guys. I think you're going to get the Shaq Barretts. Uh, hopefully, Vita Vea comes on this year, and uh, I still think uh, there's going to be some 
some free agency signings coming later on on very cheap uh, serviceable deals because a lot of people want to play for Bruce to get their name out there and try and get a big contract in, in 2020. Right. But moving quickly on, because uh, I appreciate your time here. We've uh, sort of got away from the sheet, which is always a, a good way to have a podcast. I much prefer it that way. Quick one on, on fantasy football. Do you, do you really play fantasy football? Is it something that you uh, have? No, I hate it. Um, <laughs> I hate fantasy in general. Um, I was around at the time when rotisserie baseball started up and I disliked it then because it seems to me to be a kind of asset stripping process that takes the game out of the game in in some ways. And I appreciate the fact that people get interested in it and it keeps them going, but I also don't appreciate the fact that they go berserk over it. And, and when we were doing, when Nat and I and uh, Dan Lowe were doing the AmeriCarnage podcast, we had an AmeriCarnage fantasy baseball league, which I did okay in, even when Mr. Um, what's it called? When, when the computer picks your team for you because you're too busy doing something else oh, to be able to sit in on the draft. Yeah. Mr. Auto pick. That was his name. But with baseball, the problem was that we had Josh was in Colorado and we had one of our guys in Britain who used to get up at four in the morning. And so whenever you'd get up and check your team, you would find your play, the guys who you might want to claim on waivers were already gone. And Josh is such a smart guy. He would take guys knowing that, if you were close to him, that's what you needed. So it was kind of like I was second or third every year, and that was frustrating. And I started to get obsessive about it, which I knew I would, and I didn't want to be obsessive about anything like that. Um, and then we played fantasy football, but football's different than the baseball because baseball, at least the, the, the cumulative statistics, give you give you a sort of more rounded approach to the to this to the game over the course of the season and you get a more realistic picture whereas with football big plays and touchdowns in particular skew the whole process and because it's all head to head you can be punished or not rewarded for having a fairly good team if it just so happens that um somebody has a big game or somebody has a bad game or or whatever so i i found the football i think i did two years and, and one of them was with mr auto draft um the second year and the second year i actually got to the final and lost um which i thought was a fairly impressive performance i love the my the, the part of it i actually enjoyed um and it was true in both sports was working the waiver wire yeah for the same reason I enjoy going through the undrafted guys um, every year. And, you know, this grew out of my experience in NFL Europe where a lot of those guys would show up in Europe and, you know, the more you learned about them before they showed up, the better off you were. So you started paying attention to that. Um, and of course the, the sort of base in baseball is wider than the base in, in football. Uh, there's, there's more guys available and to fill those, to fill those spots. But, but, you know, I, I just love trying to spot talent, you know, and, and then watch it come through. Uh, and the, the thing in football is you realize pretty quickly that the pyramid of talent, you know, with the very best guys at the top, and, and this is true of all sports, talent fans out. In, in a pyramid shape and each step you take down the pyramid, this is a Bill James idea. It's not original with me. Um, each step you take down the pyramid, there's more guys available at that level. 
So once you're at a certain level, you don't need to say overpay for somebody there, or you don't need to think there's nothing you can do because there's another guy with similar abilities who is always going to be available once you're down to a certain level. And that that's so true in the NFL. And, and you know, I look at the undrafted guys from this year's draft and I'm, I'm putting stars by some names, but what a star means is that if I'm correct, this guy might make the team. <laughs> yeah. And in, in rare instances, he's going to step into a team where there's actually the possibility of a job. And in even rarer in, instances, he's going to be able to, you know, play from day one and, and be successful. And I've spotted some of those guys along the way. Um, Philip Lindsay was one, you know, but even spotting him, I didn't think Philip Lindsay was going to be there starting running back and, and have a great season. I just thought this guy is like a Danny Woodhead type, and he's going to be as good as Danny Woodhead, and he's going to contribute. And, you know, and kudos to to the uh, Broncos for signing him. But, you know, that's why that was the bit I liked. I, I liked picking up a guy on waivers and putting him in the lineup and having him do well. And, you know, then I could kind of be like junior GM and, um, I guess that's kind of part of the feeling that everybody gets when they put when they put their team together. But um, I've confined myself to giving advice in the talk sports studio on Sundays to to one of the guys who uh, one of the producers who is fantasy mad and <laughs> will come in just before we go on air and say, uh, who do I start at quarterback, <laughs> Brady or Seamus Winston? <laughs> I love that. You, you, we need to get you somewhat back into it, but then it sounds like to me your best fit isn't a year-to-year draft. It's to do dynasty, which is where you you select a team, um, and that yeah. is your team moving forward. And then you can pick these guys that you're starring, like your Philip Lindsay's, like whoever you might have your eye on in this year's class, and just stash them away in a, in a squad and think, okay, I'm, this year I might not do brilliantly, but two years from now I've got all the studs and I'm holding all the aces. That's that's got to be your game, surely. Yeah. That 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 would be that would be um, a little more interesting. And of course, you know, most of the league, though, well, the Americanas League, for example, was was a free league. But I know lots of guys. Though I have a lot of friends who are in um, a long-established baseball fantasy league, and they have a they actually meet at a pub every year for their draft. And um, but I know guys in the states as well where they play in in money leagues. You know where you. Um, a couple of them, it's actually real money. So when you pay $25 for a player, you're paying $25 for a player. And, and there's a fee on transactions and stuff like that. But, but you know, most of the a lot of the leagues do work on that kind of basis where you have a certain amount of cap that you can spend on your team. And I, and I find that interesting as well. If you're a gambling kind of person, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be the way to go. But I'm not much of a gambling kind of person. Um, Although I did win the Sky Poker Challenge on my third try on that TV show. Yeah, which which I thought was pretty impressive. So I've learned today not to play poker with you. (laughs) But you'll always get it. Well, no, I I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) Well, if I can ever turn you on to a a dynasty league, then you're always welcome in one of mine. I've I've got loads of leagues going on. Give us a shout. You're always welcome. Basically, I just don't like feeling like I have to do something every morning. That's fair. Um, and with football, it's not every morning. I appreciate that. But um, I, I remember those days when I would sit there and it would be like uh, 5.59 and I would still be trying to decide between two guys in the, 
in the team or where I would have forgot to set my team and then some guy would have played on Thursday night. Because <laughs> uh. I'm sure not, I'm still I still don't actually recognize Thursday night football. I haven't given it my seal of approval to the NFL. So, you know, then the guy would play on Thursday night and do do nothing. And uh, with that spot would be gone from the team, you know. And uh, Anyway, let's move on to something more interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, if, absolutely. Just a, a quick one then, uh, talking about the season up and coming then. Um, what, are you, what are you looking forward to most? Like, uh, yeah, you don't have to hurry up. I mean, if I keep yakking and yakking, you can always cut it into two parts. <laughs> With pleasure. Well, uh, in terms of, of next season then, what, what are you most looking forward to um, uh, for the upcoming season? season? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the things is the whole Kyler, the whole Kyler conundrum in Arizona. Um, You know, one year may not be enough time to evaluate it, although Steve, Steve came, um, didn't give Josh Rosen much more time or Steve Wilkes for that matter. Um, But it's interesting to me to see how Murray does. And again, I wrote the preview or the, the update for the NFC West on the Patreon site. And, um, you know, I, I talk about it at great length as to what, you know, may or may not happen with, with Kyler Murray. But I think this is, it's possibly, um, it's possibly a big thing in terms of evolution of offense. Although on the other hand, the closest comparison to me, although I wrote a, a column earlier about him and Russell Wilson, um, but in football terms or impact terms, he's probably closer to Deshaun Watson. Um, and Mike and Bill O'Brien didn't really adjust all that much to Deshaun Watson at first. But Cliff Kingsbury doesn't have to adjust in terms of what he did in college. It'll be interesting to see whether he tries to do the same things in the pros or whether he adjusts his own systems um, when it comes. The, the second thing I think is really interesting is that the two of the best teams in the league last year were the Chiefs and the Patriots and both have suffered significant losses um, and in the Chiefs case with more to come and it will be uh, fascinating to me to see how they rebuild in in, peace Rufy the dog usually starts barking if I say J-E-S-T Jets but he started barking for some other reason. There must be somebody outside. Um, but you know, the, the Patriots, when I write the AFC roundup, I think I'll do the Patriots separately. They've done already has been so interesting, um, you know, and, and so, so much ahead of the curve um, as they usually are in terms of how, how NFL teams rebuild their teams. Um, and Andy Reid, I've looked at some of the things he's done so far and thought, you know, I can see why he's doing that and what he has in mind because with Patrick Mahomes, obviously he's got a huge talent going forward in the future. And you don't want to, you don't want to not be able to take advantage of that as it goes. But between that and Steve Stagnolo trying to rebuild their defense, um, they're going to be an interesting team. And then I guess the other sort of big story besides uh, like Antonio Brown and, and Le'Veon Bell and, their new teams and, and how the Steelers react to their loss is, is whether the saints can get over the hump because you could argue, you know, that the saints have been the best team in the NFC for the last two years without getting to the Super Bowl, And they don't show many signs of slowing down. Although I think the comments last season toward the end of the year, that Drew Brees' arm was looking a bit tired toward the end of the year might well be, um, 
you know, might well have been accurate at that point. So um, I think those, you know, certainly those three teams at the top and then and then the Cardinals are, are probably be the more intriguing stories coming into the season. Yeah, definitely. I still can't believe the narrative behind the Cardinals. Um, I, I never bought into Kyler Murray going number one and it taught me a lesson that if uh, if enough people are talking about it, then it's definitely on the table. I just dismissed it and thought it was trade bait. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I wrote a long piece about what they should do with with Rosen and Murray, and they did probably the worst possible thing in terms of getting value for Rosen uh, because it, it it was I never doubted you know from February onward that they were going to take Murray. Uh, they did a very bad job of hiding their intentions, or you know. You know, they should have like wiped the drool off of Kingsbury's chin when, <laughs> when he did press comp or done a better job of that. But you know they didn't get much for him, and especially considering what they had paid to draft him just one year before in terms of extra picks that they conceded, uh, you know, and and uh, signing Sam Bradford and Mike Glennon to mentor him, so to speak, and that didn't work very well because um, they couldn't keep the the other two of them alive long enough to do anything well they basically just made andy isabella probably the most expensive draft pick in, in nfl history that's true too yeah, and I, I really hope he pays off um he's one of those guys who you know comes in low on the radar and then by the time the draft comes everybody's hyping him up big time and uh you know i i, I think he's probably worth the hype but but certainly it depends a lot on how they're going to use him and and that's true of virtually everybody in the Kingsbury um, in the Kingsbury system. One of one of the interesting things was was kind of the rebirth of the flanker. I've just been writing a thing about John Havlicek, the basketball player, and he was drafted by the Cleveland Browns out of college, even though he didn't play college football um, as a receiver. And he went to the last cut, and then they tried to keep him on the taxi squad, as they called it in those days. But but he went to Boston and he'd been drafted in the first round by the Celtics and he played 17 years for them. So he made the right decision. But the guy they drafted at the top of that draft when they took Havlicek was Gary Collins, who's, who was on the NFL's all decade team in the sixties as a flanker. And they had, there were a couple of guys, Boyd Dowler of the Packers was another guy like that. They were tall, long striding. They ran slant patterns really well. They could they could get downfield. Joe Juravicious would have been that kind of guy um, had he played in the 60s. And there's there's all of a sudden they're not quite the same and they're not used the same way. But but this year's draft was full of guys like DK Metcalf and Nikhil Hen uh, Hen Harry. Um, Jay Jaw, who went to the uh, Eagles, Hakeem Butler, um, what's the guy, um, Kelvin, Kelvin, Kelvin Harmon from NC State, yeah, Preston, uh, Boykin, um, Preston Williams from Colorado State, who was undrafted, and Miami signed him, and if he's got his head on straight, he'll be a, a real find, I think, for them, but, you know, lots of these tall guys who are going to, they're going to, you know, try to get them one-on-one balls. Some of them, like Metcalf, can't really run routes or anything like that. But um, he makes sense for Seattle because when the play breaks down and Wilson's scrambling around, if he's one-on-one, he's going to catch the ball. And, you know, you can throw the ball anywhere near him, like like a Plexico Barres. So I, I think that's another thing I'll be looking for is how many of these guys actually wind up being successes um, or whether the, you know, the trend toward long cornerbacks and in the NFL is going to make it harder for them than, than it is. Cause you know, there's a huge jump from college in terms of the quality of defense that you face 
um, week in, week out. And then the other thing that that reminds me of or, or would lead me to is the change in reviewing pass interference because it's something like holding um, that the rules allow and it's a matter of interpretation. So the rule or the guidance to the rule says that a player has to be gaining an unfair advantage. And when you look at the way officials interpret that, if you're like Rob Gronkowski, for example, a guy can jump on your back and make you carry him piggyback down the field. And the referee can still not consider that you're, that he's getting an unfair advantage because all he's doing is, is, um, um, equaling out the unfair advantage you have because you're Gronk. <laughs> it's, it, it's a strange thing. And, and when you have the, the whole league now coaching, but, you know, but it was kind of pioneered or by Pete Carroll in Seattle. If you watch the way that, especially his outside corners who are, although they're technically playing a zone, they're really in press man coverage. They're long, they have long arms, they have long strides. They're not afraid to get beaten with, with the first or second move because they know that they can keep stride with you and keep a hand on you. And as the ball comes closer and your eyes and your hand, arms move to play the ball, they will play your arms uh, with their hands. And as long as the official doesn't see that they're getting an unfair advantage, that's going to go. And face guarding obviously is not illegal, um, more or less. So, you know, the way that you play pass coverage now legally is illegal. <laughs> Just like the way that you play pass blocking is half the time illegal, but they only call a hold if you grab a, a good hunk of jersey or if you get someone by the neck and wrestle them down. Um, you know, but otherwise back in the day when you had to keep your when you had to keep your um hands inside your shoulders when you blocked, there was no question as to what was holding and what wasn't. Now because there's a question about it and because there's a question about interference, what you're gonna see is rather than the judgment of the official on the spot, which is not always perfect, obviously, as the as the Saints um, Rams game showed. And by by the way, if you look at replays of that and you watch the referee, his eyes were on the play uh, when the ball gets there. When he claims he didn't see it, he's he's not telling the truth. Um, but anyway, but it's all going to come down to um, Al Riveron or you know whoever is sitting in the booth in in New York. And not only will that be um, subject to the what would you call it? The extra biblical parsing that you get of rules, which which Mike Pereira and Dean Blandino are so good at. Um, but it will also lead people to think, well, what if they want a game to come out this way? Here's one play where you could change it. And as we were talking about earlier on, you know, and many people have noted, you could change the the Patriots Rams game if you decide to call interference on um, the first of the of the two passes that Cooks probably should have caught, but didn't because there was, uh, I think it was Harmon um, has a hand in there inside of his arm and, you know, and whether he is or isn't gaining an unfair advantage for, on that is purely a judgment call. Um, he doesn't seem to be grabbing anything, but his hands in there inside the arm. And, you know, um, and I really worry about this in terms of, of I'm not a huge fan of replay anyway. Um, and I think it's led us down some some blind alleys. Um, I like better the kind of barroom 
barroom approach, where instead of going to Al Riveron in New York, you go to a bar in a neutral city where you have 40 guys watch the game. And then you say, was that interference? And if if 21 of them say yes, and 19 of them say no, then you, you throw the flag. And, um, you know, because we know what we kind of know what it is when we see it. You know, uh, we know what a catch is when we see it and what's not. But all this ground and and uh, process of and, uh, you know, ground can't cause the fumble, but it can cause an interception and that kind of stuff really just drives an old guy like me crazy. Um, I, I, cause I, it used I, to be. Yeah. When you went to the ground, you had to hang on to the ball. Um, it was part of running. You had to be able to hit the ground and not drop the ball. And it really gave people an out when, you know, and I understand the logic of it, you know, in, in a kind of rabbinical sense or in a physics sense, when the knee hits the ground, the play is over. But in, you know, in kind of like a reality sense of somebody looking at a play, the play's not over till the guy kind of comes to rest. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. To, to refute sort of a couple of things you said there, the first thing about the bar rule, I have never met a neutral fan in my life. They don't exist because if they, <laughs> it's if true. they you have do any... kind of take <laughs> those games, don't you? you kind of wind up rooting for somebody or, or, or against more often, more often you root against one team rather than for the other. Well, that that's exactly it. That That's my point is that if you, if you have any vested interest in a game, the only way you're a neutral is the very first time you watch it with absolutely no influence from anybody else. But once you start pulling... You'd have to get 40 guys... Yeah, you'd have to get 40 guys who haven't bet on the game or don't have any skill player posi- position players yeah, on their fantasy teams. And that might be tough. Yeah. And, and and the second thing is, I think a lot of people are really concerned about the, the rules or the ambiguity now or the ability to challenge absolutely everything. But there are very limited challenges. And, I, and the way that I kind of see this working is tactically and you see it in other sports that have got these sort of free range to challenge anything i think of tennis as an example with these challenges they always seem to have either challenges left over or they use them towards the very end of 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 a set because they don't want to burn them at crucial periods and you know the game the game isn't necessarily won or lost in the first half so i think unless there is something truly you know, truly blatant in the first half, they think, right, we're almost certain to win this. I, I can't see many first half challenges happening unless it's at a very crucial period, like maybe before the two minute warning, before the half, that yeah. might make it a two score difference. So I but, think the challenges will come in the second half. I, I think the the bigger worry is, I, and, and the the biggest misuse I see of this is perhaps a frivolous use of it, where a team is just needing a break of momentum and will use a replay at something that probably isn't all that questionable because now they've got the opportunity to replay or to challenge things that might or might not be, and it doesn't necessarily have to be called. That's my biggest worry of, 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 of this rule is you'll get a, a coach here, use this as a, as a stalling tactic to almost like ice the kicker in some way, but ice the, the quarterback in a crucial. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be terribly effective because one of the, another one of my little grumbles about the game, game is that once teams started using the hurry up effectively and by teams that generally means the Patriots um, because whenever Bill Belichick gets an edge the, the quote unquote competition committee tries to take it away so now you see the like the um, umpire standing on the ball um, until the defense is fully set which takes away some of that hurry up advantage that it may even Chip Kelly had, you know, one good year of Philadelphia before teams caught on to how to, to slow him down. But I worry more, see, I worry less about coaches abusing the challenge than about what we've got now 
and for the last few years, you know, with the automatic review in the last two minutes, mm. I haven't done a systematic study of it. But my anecdotal feeling would be that in a number of cases, I've seen teams getting, in effect, a free timeout in a situation where they really need it and it really hurts the other team for a play that does not need to be reviewed. You know, either, either the difference it would make one way or the other is not huge or it's really obvious what happened and, and the review is, is completely unnecessary. Um, the officials haven't done anything wrong. And and that can become troublesome, you know, especially when you have a team that's that's profligate with timeouts or challenges. Say Andy Reid is coaching it, um, you know, and then you come down into the fourth quarter. They have no timeouts left. They're they're driving with a minute and twenty seconds left, you know, and all of a sudden timeout for a review, you know, and and they get there, they get to call another play, they get to rest, uh, you know. It, to me, that that's the kind of worry. Um, that uh, automating the game, as it were, or centralizing the game um, bothers me. And, and, you know, to an extent, and again, you know, old guys have always said this since, since the beginning of time and and TV, Um, you know, the game was better when I played and and it's usually demonstrably not (laughs) Um, in a lot, in a lot of ways, but, but, you know there there are there are things we, that you can look at and and to me one i've i've referred to it in, in two different ways what first is the basketballization of the game to an ex- and to an extent that's what the um judgment call thing is about it's just like basketball um and basketball uh, again i was writing a piece about john i'm writing a piece now about john havlicek i've been looking at some games from the 60s and from the 70s it's a whole different game in terms of like what the officiating allows players to do and players can be much more spectacular if they don't have to worry so much about traveling and palming the ball and, and double dribbling it to get control and that kind of thing um and what you've got in the NFL as the game gets more and more into into a matchup game is more and more the wide receiver against the defensive back or linebacker looks more and more like basketball players battling for a rebound or, or getting, you know, getting into coverage. And the second thing is the video gameization of the, of the NFL in which they more and more, we look at it as the thing that we get replayed and it becomes more and more like a video game. Um, and the players become more and more like players in Madden, at least, at least in our imaginations and, and kind of in the way that, that TV is, is presenting them. And, you know, things like the tracking ball, when you see somebody pass it, the, the next gen stats where you discover somebody's running 17.3 miles per hour over 10 yards, which, which means nothing in terms of, of football and, and really tells you nothing apart from, hey, he's fast. It's kind of like David Vine telling you that someone looks really fast because he's one hundredth of a second faster to the sixth gate on a ski course. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, he looks really fast. Well, the guy before him looked really fast, too, and he was one hundredth of a second slower. You know, <laughs> they both look really fast, um, and and that kind of thing kind kind of bothers me. And I'm I don't you know I, I don't want a, the game to go back to the days of Woody Hayes and and uh, Vince Lombardi and and wh- whatever. But but um, you know, having said that, I think to an extent the the broadcast and 
fan and, and audience friendly tail is wagging the football dog. I think that's a fair assessment, but I I, I love the Ski Sunday <laughs> reference. So that, that 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 took me way way back to my childhood, which was which was great. But I I think analytics plays a very big part in discovering trends, and um, I think especially in terms of identifying health and and key identifiers in athletes that that will get the extra percentages out of them and make it a highly effective game. But I don't think you can rule by uh, analytics as lo- alone you know you, you still need these there's no secret that the best coach in the game is the one that's got the most experience and the one that's been around the longest and been enrolled the longest and you know the, these sorts of things uh point to the fact that you can it, never it, be experience yeah. it's a funny thing though because it wasn't too long ago. Well, I can tell you almost exactly how long it was. It was 12 years ago or 13 years ago when Peter King wrote a very famous column in which he he coined his 55 speed limit, which, you know, because 55 miles per hour was the speed limit. And his theory was that no coach over 55 had ever been successful in the NFL, which being Peter King was immediately followed by Tom Coughlin winning the Super Bowl. Um, and of course, Bill's gone on. <laughs> since he turned 55 to to do fairly well. Um, But, you know, I I think what you say has an element of truth in it, but the really interesting thing is that the the movement in coaches, although there's more recycling of old coaches and old, not in the sense of veteran, but old in the sense of veteran plus being old in in terms of years as head coaches than I think we've ever seen before, you know, like Vic Fangio being a, a really good example of finally getting his first head coaching job and Bruce Arians coming back and whatever. But the other coaches who are being hired, the hottest thing now is to be like the quarterback's coach for a really good offensive coordinator who had a good year his first year as a head coach. And these guys are getting younger and younger all the time. So, you know, Sean McVay and Zach Taylor now, and you know, one after another. Um getting getting head jobs with no head coaching experience whatsoever and being an nfl head coach is more than x's and o's and you know certainly for most coaches it's x's and o's on one side of the ball or the other um because that's 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 what they've that's what they've come up to but you know as an nfl coach you're also the ceo almost of a of a company you're kind of like a command, the commanding general in, of a huge army on a, on a big operation where you have to delegate an awful lot of stuff and you can't really stay hands-on with, with, with all of it. And again, that's one of the very interesting reasons why, why Bill is such a, an anomaly in the NFL. And, and part of it is that he literally grew up coaching. You know, he was breaking down film for his father when he was like nine years old. Um, so he has this really deep understanding of both sides, both sides of the ball. And then when you have those those kind of general of the army's kind of responsibilities, and he just basically does what he has to do, but he copes with it by doing it very badly. <laughs> so when you, when you go to a press conference, he doesn't worry about what his answer is going to be. He gives he sort of gives the minimal amount of information required, and and not a not a drop more. Um, and and has become famous for it, you know, and the the kind of smart beat reporters will try to ask a question 
question about football in general, and then they'll get this long answer about the history of the game and, and the stuff that he loves and understands. But if you, you know, if you ask him one of those questions about, you know, will will the quarterback position be re reevaluated after today's game, and he'll he'll just look at the guy like he's, you know, insane and <laughs> and won't answer it at all. And yeah, and that was one of my one of my favorite games last year. Just changed the subject was Jacksonville beating the Patriots, which we did the game because we did the Jags games last year. Um, we did that on TalkSport. And, you know, like like the the Chiefs game the year before and a couple of other games where the Patriots have gotten beaten badly and, you know, and haven't figured out what it is they've got or what they're doing. This one really looked bad because the Patriots looked old and slow and the Jags were, were all over them. And, and, you know, even Blake Bortles looked good. And I really thought at that point, there might be a, a passing of the torch in the AFC. And, you know, in Jacksonville, had they should have beaten the Patriots in the playoffs the year before. They had been outcoached, basically, or, you know, Doug Marone had basically uh, had a throat clamp when they, they, they might have been able to put that game away. Mm-hmm. And everyone, after years of saying Jacksonville were a dark horse or whatever, you know, we thought the Jags were going to be really good. And um, obviously, they weren't last year. And, um, you know, now everybody's thinking, well, the Jags might be another dark horse if Nick Foles can do the same kind of things that he did in Philadelphia. They still have a lot of defensive talent. But, you know, now all of a sudden they're playing in a really tough division again where where, um, probably all three teams in division are going to be better than they were last year. Um, So that's another fascinating one. But, you know, I, I wondered at the time if Tom Coughlin had been on the sidelines rather than Doug Marone in that playoff game, if they might have been if they might have won that game against the Pats. And then last year I wondered if Tom Coughlin had been on the sidelines instead of Doug Marone, if his head would have exploded somewhere around week six of the season. Because you remember how Coughlin's hair head gets really red as he gets excited. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I was literally waiting for it to just to <clears throat> in some game. I mean, I remember the narrative after that game you talked about last season, and it was billed as, after that, this is the fight for the number one seed. These two teams are going to be one and two, and it, and it looks like Jacksonville have taken advantage, and, and they're now like on course for the one seed because they've got this vital win over over the Patriots and then they just completely imploded and um, their behavior over here with the bar bill. I don't think that helped. And I, I, you know, it just seems to me with the Jags and it's every year there, there just seems to be either it's a confidence or a discipline or a coaching issue where they just cannot put it together for the, all the games that they necessarily need to. Yeah. It, it, it was as if it was as if the swagger of their defense took over the whole team. Mm. And, you know, in, in terms of their offense, that was undeserved because they took advantage of a few bad plays by the Patriots as much as anything else and a couple of really good runs by, by Blake Bortles to um, run up their points on, on New England in that game. And uh, I, I, just, I just think that there was, there was a sense in Jacksonville that nobody really had a firm hand on the controls. And they've always kind of... They've always kind of like a couple of teams that have had problems over the, the past years. They always seem to react without a long-term plan in mind. And so they're always trying to patch the latest hole or deal with the latest problem that's come up. 
Um, and and this is one of the things with analyzing the draft. And, and like I said, I'm doing these rundowns of each division. You realize that you look at a team and say, you know, they had a really good draft and they filled some needs. But then you realize that the needs they filled really only are treading water. They're putting them back where they were last year because they've lost player X or player Y where they had a hole at this spot, you know. And and rather than improving the team or or, or, or building it, you know, looking on for two years down the line, they're they're really only they're really only staying the same. And and therefore you have to kind of look at the totality of the draft in in a sort in a sort of different way, you know. And you can make the argument with the team every every year there's at least one who think if they get that one receiver or the one edge rusher uh, or, you know, or the one guy who's going to anchor an offensive line or the one, uh, the one running back, you know, that that's going to put them over the hump. But those teams are kind of few and far between. And, and it really tends not to work. You know, Atlanta was a good example of that when they got Tony Gonzalez, mm. um, example or when, or when they brought in um Sanu as another receiving threat you know this was going to put them over the hump because they had all the other pieces in place but it seems like you never do have all the other pieces in place you know it's it's so much of a team game um in in that sense and you have to be able to take advantage of of, of the pieces that you have and and knowing how to um it's another sign of good coaching you know is knowing how to get the best out of what you have. And part of the way of doing that is not asking players to do what they can't do. You have to recognize their limitations as well as their strengths. So, um, you know, you, you have to, um, you have to scheme for, for their strengths and scheme to avoid their limitations. Um, a coach that's really good at that, at that can get away with playing Troy Brown at defensive back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you know what? I don't. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I just don't think there is ever such thing as a, a complete team. The, mo- the most complete team I've ever seen is that 2007 Patriots team that went 16-0 and in the regular season and then lost the Super Bowl to, to the Giants. I mean, that, that team was full of absolute immense talent. Just everywhere on the field was a leader, a legend, a, a potential Hall of Famer. Um, it, it was full of everything and they didn't go home with the Lombardi that year because someone found a way to win. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Tom Coughlin's been good against the Patriots that, uh, and Eli's been good against the Patriots. That's for sure. And those, those two games were games of one play, you know, where one play could have gone the other way. Um, and the, the result would have been different, but you know, you remember in 2007, the giants ran with the Patriots in that last game of the season. Mm. Um, they lost the game in the end, but they played them, you know, even in a shootout game and they, they played them stride for stride. So they knew that they could beat them, uh, given the right circumstances. And, and, um, there was also a game in that season where, where the Ravens stopped the Patriots on fourth and one, but Rex Ryan had called timeout before the play (laughs) to change the defense. And given them a second chance, they didn't stop them. And the Patriots went on to win that game. But that game was won. Uh, you know, it was in the bag for the Ravens. And they wouldn't have gone undefeated had that happened. And, and paradoxically, I suspect if they hadn't gone undefeated, they might well have won the Super Bowl. Um, because to a certain extent, that, that, pres- that pressure would, would have been off. Um, that was um, 2006. Seven. That was the first Super Bowl I did with the BBC. Yeah, with with Rod Woodson. 
and uh, my best line in that game was at halftime, and and uh, Jake Jake Humphrey said, uh, or we came back, I think, at halftime. Jake said, "So what's the situation?" I said, "Well, the Giants are winning three to six. <laughs> and Jake looked at me like, "Huh?" And Rod Rod said, "You're right. You're absolutely right." <laughs> and uh, you know what I meant was the Giants' game plan was to keep the game close, make it a one put like kind of like the um, Rams. And the Patriots, although that wasn't intentional um, mm. on either team's part, but but the idea is when you're in a one-score game, you still have a chance. Um, so if they could if they could uh, keep the Patriots down to a low score and stay within a score of them, Eli was always going to be in there with a with a chance to make a play, which is exactly what he did, uh, or David Tyree did. And it's kind of like uh, you know Coughlin's teams were very much kind of Parcells' teams based on on uh, good defense and turnovers, run the ball to control the clock and have a quarterback who can throw downfield, make, make a couple of big plays in every game. And that's, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly what they did in that one. And there's a few teams, strangely enough. I mean, it's always been teams that follow that general pattern, but this season coming up, you know, you've got the Ravens and you've got the Seahawks. And remember what the Seahawks did at Wembley to the Raiders last year. I mean, and that was one of my favorite games of the season last year, because especially being there and down on, we were down on the field for that one. And I got to, to see DJ Fluker's massive, butt, um, you know, close up uh, and watch, watch what he was doing to uh, Raiders defensive linemen. They, you know, they just pushed them around, pushed them around and, and ran the ball, ran the ball, ran the ball. And then Russell Wilson's there to make a, a big play if he has to, which is kind of the way he played at Wisconsin. Um, his last year of college when he when he transferred over from NC State. I was doing Big Ten games for Eurosport, so, so I saw him there. They were a run-first team as well. And, you know, you've got a couple of teams now um, that are sort of built on, on that line. And um, I think you might even include the Bills in that if you – if you think of Josh Allen as being a run first quarterback in the kind of Cam Newton or Bobby Douglas mode. Um, and I think the bills have been very interesting because they had people weren't noticing, but they had a very good defense last year. Um, right. They were tough every week. And this year they, they tried to, you know, put pieces around to make Josh, Josh Allen more effective. Um, but you're going to have, you know, quite a few teams, in a, in a league where everybody thinks it's wide open offense, you have, you're going to have quite a few teams that are playing a run first ball control possession kind of game, which means that you have to have a good defense to, to win that. And, you know, and we can go back to, I mean, the last time when that was really effective, the beginning of the century, when you had the Ravens in uh, 2000 winning the Super Bowl, and then you had the Bucks two years later, you know, those teams were both, tremendous defensive teams you know like chicago bears uh 80 84 85 defensive teams who liked liked to run the ball and 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 um you know look who the quarter people say you need a quarterback to win a super bowl well you know the uh um the ravens won that super bowl with with trent dilfer at quarterback and the bucks won with brad johnson at quarterback and um and brad's you know Brad was actually a really good quarterback who was never valued because he didn't have a strong arm. Um, but it, and he was never valued as much as he should be by, by the Vikings and then by the Redskins and, and then by Gruden in Tampa. And, you know, he, he, 
he had that paradox of having a good year for each team. And then, you know, they wanted to move on to somebody they thought was quote unquote better, um, who never turned out to be quote unquote better. Uh, but those teams, you know, the new Ravens, I think are kind of not schematically patterned on that, but I think that's the dream that they have is to have a defense um, that can make that, you know, make an off offense that much better. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because, you know, watching them play last year was almost like watching John Harbaugh's uh, Stanford teams play. Uh, a lot of the same offensive concepts uh, were, go- were going on there. So it's like the opposite end of, of college ball coming in and influencing, influencing the NFL. I'm, get- I'm getting all excited for the season already. <laughs> so so we, our, our mantra was uh, very much uh, no off season. It was all about uh, just going all the way through. And, uh, and it's been great from our side, just constantly following the narratives and the stories and, and following it all. But um, I have to say, this has been absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, we just haven't stopped. And uh, I've, re- I've looked at the time and realized that we've gone probably over double what, uh, what I thought we would, which oh, is, uh, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> we've been going for over an hour 30. So uh, we should probably cut this here. But before, before we do, uh, it, it's been a real pleasure, Mike. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners where they can find your wonderful work, your articles, uh, where they can interact with you if they've got any follow-up questions with some of the, the great sort of knowledge sharing and history that you've gone through with us. Sure. I mean, the, the, the Twitter handle is at Carlson Sports, all one word. Um, or Carlson's Ports, if you want to look at it that way. The Patreon column is, if you go to Patreon, uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, it's Mike Carlson, F-M-T-E, for Friday Morning Tight End, which is what my old column on NFL UK used to be called. Um, That is a subscription site, but it's only um, $3 a month or about two pounds a month. Um, and as I said, I'm going through the, the league division by division. When the season starts, I, I pick all the games. And last year I picked uh, two thirds of them correctly, which, which would have put me fourth on uh, pick watch, uh, which is uh, a U.S. site that tracks all of the pundits who pick games um, in the, in the, uh, in the country. Nat, um, I, I I appear frequently on Nat's, uh, the NFL show podcast, um, which will resume, I think, fairly soon going on on a weekly basis. And when the season starts, it's going to be twice a week. And I think I'm going to be on one show and uh, Nat will have Greg Rosenthal on the on another. Um, ben Isaacs pops up on there uh, quite quite a bit talking about college football in particular uh hopefully nat and i will be doing games on talk sport too again um in the season on sunday nights and of course hopefully uh touch wood because i never know until later in the year um i'll be doing the bbc games in london and and the super bowl again uh, you know which which for me is great the, the london games nat sometimes hosts them as you probably know when mark's doing um soccer and uh jason and oc are there and uh we get guests in and then on the super bowl i join chappers and jason and oc which is great because those guys you know have their twice weekly show on bbc which is a huge success um you know probably the most successful uh magazine type program that the sports had in this country and you know it it and the games in london kind of build off each other and you know i I think that's really good and and for me it's it's a really good feeling because they do a really nice job and i get to come in and kind of 
compliment them in a sense, um, but it's a sort of seamless addition, you know, and, and I feel, um, you know, really lucky that we can do that because, because they've got their, they've got their routine down. And then, and then I come in for the, the big games that where I parachute in to save the day. And, <laughs> um, and we all, we all seem very comfortable and happy with that. It's, and those guys are just such fun to work with. It's, um, it really is a gas. I mean, you know, when people, say oh it must you know what you do must be interesting i i usually say something like it beats working for a living and you know and honestly you put a lot of hard work in and, and you're under a certain amount of pressure when you're live on air and you know you, you don't want to make mistakes and you want to be coherent and you, you know you have to be at the when you're called on and all that kind of stuff but but on the other hand we really do have a good time and you know um and when you're able to when you're able to do that, honestly, I think it shows up on the broadcast too, and, and people watching like that. When if they think you know, if you guys are having a good time, then they're going to have a good time as well. Absolutely, it, it definitely does translate through. I think uh, you know, I've been an admirer of your work for for over a decade. I think what what you do is brilliant. What you bring, you know, I watch the regular shows with the three of them, and, and what you do is it adds another dynamic. But it, it's just, it's just the way that you analyze and view the game is is what I love and you call things sort of you explain why things happen why things have transpired and I think that's what I like as someone who's trying to always continue to learn and improve on the game from someone who didn't have the ability to play it for as long as I would have liked so thank you so much for for being on I really appreciate the time and and how much time you've yeah thanks for the kind words and uh, yeah we'll we'll do it again we can get to some of the questions you sent me in advance (laughs) absolutely (laughs) we we will take care no thank you so much and uh listeners at home hope you've really enjoyed this podcast and until next time which will be next week keep rushing Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.